Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. This week's Telecast is a special show looking at the story behind the new Irving Welsh drama, Crime, which is out today on BritBox. Coming up later in the show is an on-set chat I had with Irving and Buccaneer Media's Richard Tolkart a few weeks ago. They produced the show along with Tony Wood. But first, I'm delighted to welcome a bona fide Hollywood star to Telecast, Crime's leading actor and executive producer, Dugray Scott. Hi, Dugray. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much, Justin. Very happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming along. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So we're going to talk about the process of how crime came together and and your new production company venture a little later in the show. But first of all, I just wanted to take a look back at your acting career. Did you come from an acting family originally? That's not a straightforward answer to that question. My father, along with his brother, my uncle Tom, way, way, way back in the 50s, were in a theatre company called the Glasgow Unity Theatre, which was an amateur uh, production company. And they did quite famous productions like, you know, Ina Lama Stewart's Men Should Weep. They did an adaptation of, of Mice and Men, The Gorbo Story. And so that was kind of in the background, not really omnipresent, but it was certainly something that I was kind of aware of. And, and my father's venture into acting sort of lasted very, not very long, but six years. My uncle, I think, apparently was a, a terrific actor. But that wasn't really what got me into acting. I was kind of like every other kid from where I was brought up and Fife was obsessed with football. And in fact, my dad had been a footballer for Queen's Park in Glasgow. So we're talking in 1936 here. I mean, my dad was born in 1918, and so he was quite old when I was born. But I was obsessed with football, but was never good enough to be a footballer. So I was kind of was quite an introverted kid in many respects from the age of, of 11 onwards and sort of did a, a musical at school and really enjoyed the experience of being on stage. And then there was a drama 
club opened and they did a Tennessee Williams play called um, Suddenly Last Summer. And I did that play and I just kind of felt quite enjoyed, you know, pretending to be other people. It was a way to express yourself emotionally that you weren't really able to do in normal life. And the idea of creating a character just fascinated me. And then I read... I read a lot of Arthur Miller, I read The Crucible, I read Death of a Salesman. My dad ended up being a salesman. So when I read that, I kind of thought, I then got really plainly and very explicitly understood the power of writing in terms of what, you know, how that could connect different nations across the globe. And then saw the, you know, the, the potential of drama and what it could do for for one and people and, and society. And so then about 14, I thought, I, I just, I need to be an actor. And of course, where I was brought up, it was very few, I don't know if there was anyone, I think Ken Hutchison, the Scottish actor, he sort of was born in Leslie in Fife, and I wasn't really aware. Anyway, it was something that certainly wasn't encouraged. It was like my, my career officer was like, when I was 16, he was like, no, 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 you need to get an apprenticeship in the yeah. dockyards, uh, join the army, electrician, plumber, all that kind of thing. It was a typical working class upbringing. I kind of just knew that I, that's what I wanted to do. So I went to, to do a foundation course and then I, I ended up, even then they were like, you can be an actor, not you. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I will be. Anyway, so I, I auditioned and got into Welsh College and went there and, and I had an amazing three years at Welsh College, which actually is where my son went as well, Gabriel, who's now 23. And so he went to the same college, and, and I had three of the best years of my life there. Absolutely loved it. I love Wales. Wales is a, you know, phenomenal country. And that, I guess, is my journey. And, and I guess, if, you know, I did, a, I did, I was a soldier I did a, I, in the, the Scottish Theatre Company's production of In Satire of Three Estates in 1984 or five, I think, at the Edinburgh Festival. And then after college, you know, got a play, my first TV job was in Taggart in Glasgow, directed by Graham Thixton, and it was called Nest of Vipers, and I think it won a Royal Society TV award or something like that. Anyway, it was a really good production about this young guy who was um, a necrophile, lovely right. subject. And uh, so that was kind of, you know, and that's how I started, and then I sort of did plays and loved the theatre. I never thought about anything other than than getting the opportunity to act because to me it was really important to be able to communicate, you know, emotionally, intellectually through the power of of writing. And it was I wouldn't say it's therapy for me, but in some ways it was. It was a it was an expression that I never really had in my, you know, day-to-day life. And so it became kind of oxygen for me and was fascinated by movies and was obsessed with, you know. Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino and Brando, Alec Guinness, Ingrid Bergman, Meryl Streep, Maggie Smith, Judy Depp, all these actors I just was in awe of and just, you know, they were amazing, blew me away. And so, you know, I just wanted a job. I just wanted to be able to act. Um, And, you know, TV and film came came after that, Not, not because I wasn't searching for it. It just was what was a job. So, yeah, I'll do that. And that's kind of how I got started. So you say you went to Welsh College. Yeah. I mean, what were the opportunities in Scotland like for a young actor back then? I mean, was it a case of you had to move away to move forward? 
Well, not you didn't have to. There was two drama colleges in Scotland. There was one in Edinburgh, Queen Margaret College, and then there was one in the Royal Scottish Academy. And, and I just wanted to have a different experience. I wanted to get out of Scotland because I was just curious. And uh, not because I didn't like Scotland. I love Scotland, but I wanted to, to just see a different part of the world. And so, you know, I got a grant for Wales. And so that's where I ended up. And I'm really happy I went there. I don't you know, I don't wish I went anywhere else. That that was three amazing years for me. What was your first big break then that you look back on now and think that, you know, that set the course for your career? Interestingly, it wasn't what you wouldn't say. It wasn't a film or anything like that. It was actually a play that I did called, and it's a long title, this, Unidentified Human Remains in the True Nature of Love, which was a, a, a Canadian play by Brad Fraser, I think directed by Ian Brown at the Traverse Theatre. I loved Ian Brown. I mean, he's such a great director. And, and you know, it was a production at the Traverse, and it was a great part playing this sort of gay kind of guy whose best friend turns out to be a serial killer. And it was a flamboyant part, and it was very different from me, and it was like, it was just great to play. And, and I just loved that time at the Traverse in Scotland was such a, a, a kind of, you know, a hub of creativity. And, you know, the Traverse to me was synonymous with Scottish theatre and it was exciting to be there. Anyway, so the play was very successful and then it transferred to Hampstead in London. And then people came, a lot of people came to see it. And so there was a bit of like, oh, who's this guy? What does that even mean? But And then I sort of started to get into meetings and stuff like that. And then I did TV. You know, I remember I did The Crow Road as well with Gavin Miller. Uh, Brian Ellsley adapted the Ian Banks novel, and that was really good. That went really well. And I was playing the stand-up comic and that, again, very different from me. <laughs> My friend Bradley Adams produced it. That, that kind of worked. And, and so from there, I remember auditioning for Twin Town and, you know, got the part. And Twin Town, when that came out, it sort of, you know, struck a chord with people. And from that, you know, I think things began to happen. People saw it in America and flown over to L.A. to screen test for various things. I guess Ever After was a big production that, you know, because I remember having an audition for Ever After and the director and everyone was like, no, he's not right for this. He's played a drug-addled copper in Twin Town. He's, he's completely wrong for Prince Charming. But I remember going to LA and I, I got a, a part in Deep Impact, literally got off the, 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 the plane and, and got that part. Anyway, so when I was there, my agent set me up for, to meet Drew Barrymore and, and she said, you've just got a charmer. So I remember meeting Drew Barrymore and just thinking, "This is it. I've got to, I've got to make an impression." So we just, we just actually clicked and we got on really well. And she was like to the producers, "No, I want to see him." And they were like, "Well, we've already seen him and he's not right." And she's like, "No, no, he's right. He's great." So she, we, they set up a screen test in London, and um, and I got it. They just told me because we, it was evident that it was working, that it was the chemistry was great, and we were great together. And the director was like. Don't know what you did, kid, but you got it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you little motherfucker. I told you no, and now I'm saying yes. 
So I was determined. I, I was pretty dogged, and I, you know, I mean, for all my insecurities, which there are many, uh, you know, I, there's something I have, and I don't know where it comes from, but I have a determination that that just keeps on going, you know, and 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 that, and that sort of stood me in good stead with crime because that was a long journey to get this made, but you know, both me and Tony would buccaneer. We were both like, nah, we're, we're going to do this. We don't know how we're going to get it made, but we're going to get it made. When it comes to you as an actor and what motivates you, yeah. you've worked across some of the, you know, the movie industry's biggest franchises and TV industry, Desperate Housewives, Mission Impossible, etc. What ambitions do you still have unfulfilled in, in TV and cinema? I want to do some more plays. I'd really love to do an Arthur Miller play. TV, I'd like to do... I mean, for example, there's a, a, a novelist called William McIlvany, Scottish novelist, who I really want to adapt his work for you know, television. And so I guess my overall ambition is to develop Scottish writing. And not exclusively, not because that's all I want to do. I mean, and, and it's not a xenophobic decision at all I mean I love England I live in and I love England and, and it's not about that it's just that I just know that I have an affinity for Scotland and I understand the you know having been brought up there so I know when I read a novel that's set in Scotland I know you know innately what that means I have an explicit understanding of the communication that's happening between the writer and the reader and um and it's just part of me. And so, you know, I, I feel that it's kind of similar to, you know, an American actor or producer going, you know, this guy from New York, I understand this this voice. It's within me. I have an inherent understanding of it. And that's the same for me when I read James Kelman or William McIlvany or Urban Welsh or someone like... Um, Jenny Fagan, who's just written this amazing novel called Luckenbooth, or Robin Jenkins, who wrote The Cone Gatherers and uh, Poverty Castle, um, Robert Louis Stevenson, um, you know, there's so many. Douglas Stewart, who wrote um, Shoggy Bain. Listen, there's, there, we, we have an incredible well of talent in, in Scotland. And it's not, I'm not saying that we're better than anyone else. I'm just saying that I understand it probably better because it's it's part of my culture, part of my DNA. And so I want to be part of that um, journey of perhaps lending my support to the, the talent that exists in Scotland. And, and if I can help um, produce some more productions, you know, that, that are inherently Scottish, then that would fulfil a long-time ambition of mine. So a lot of people say that, you know, we're in the golden age of drama production, uh, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, all of these players, all the studios now yeah. creating their own streaming services, and there's never been so much competition yeah. for great literature turned into TV drama. Why do you think it's taken so long for an Irving Welsh novel, or in this case, an original story based around the novel, to be made for TV? 
Well, first of all, he's, I think people are a bit scared of him. Not scared of him, but perhaps not quite understand how to sell his sort of work. And, you know, after train spotting, I think there was an expectation that, you know, a lot of his books would be adapted. And I think he's had some other of his books adapted, you know, for cinema and other people have adapted his work for TV. But this obviously is the first time that he's adapted one of his own works for television. And I think he's very difficult to, to get right, you know. He's a unique voice. He's not easy to get right. And that's that that's because he's so unique and so flamboyantly you know literary in a sense and you know I think people have tried before I mean listen it took me I had this novel 10 years ago and then only when I teamed up with Tony Wood at Buccaneer and Richard Talk Hart that it began to get momentum obviously taking it to, um, to to Polly Hill but I think the language probably scares a lot of broadcasters thinking you know how can we you know broadcast this but um i think being behind a paywall it helps you in that respect because you're you don't have license to say whatever you want but at least then you you're, you're you can tell the story in the vernacular and it becomes more of a, an authentic representation and the stories are dark you know trying to sell a story about a child who's been sexually abused and murdered is you know not not easy um and especially when he doesn't shy away from it he confronts it head on and so this story you know encompasses everything mental health um, drug abuse uh, murder pedophilia um, you know uh, poverty racism homophobia it's the whole shebang and so and it's funny as well so it's 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 difficult to to have people to to encapsulate because you can't really put Irvin in a box. He's um, he's unique. So I think that uh, hopefully, I hope that this will be fuel for us to do other of Irvin's uh, novels and adapt them, of which they are in, in the work, you know, like The Blade Artist, which our company is going to do with um, Bobby. That's Robert Carlyle. Well, yeah, sorry, Bobby Carlyle. I was calling Bobby. Robert Carlyle and the sex life of Siamese twins as well. Yeah, so I think that that a long answer to your question of why is it difficult to get urbans and why is it taking so long, you know, I, I, part of me doesn't know, but all I know is that it can be done and we've done it. Must be, uh, to a certain sense, you coming full circle. This has been a long time. This is what ten years. Ten years for me, yeah. Because he, because I flew to Dublin like ten, ten years ago, just after I'd done Father and Son, to try and find something to do with those guys that I'd done Father and Son with Brian and Michael, and then we we ended up looking at crime, and we all loved it, but just we nothing happened with it. Couldn't do it, and it sort of lost momentum. And then when I met Tony five years ago, he was a huge fan of. Irvin and together we you know uh, we we started to develop it and um, I mean Tony's brilliant because he's much more sort of intelligent than I am <laughs> I'm more of an I mean I'm not I'm bright but you know I, I mean he's 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 brilliant that you know the overall the eye the, the objective eye in, in, in many respects and 
me and him together worked very, very well as a team. And uh, yeah, and, and and we got there. And Irvin and Dean, Dean Carboner, who's um, Irvin's partner, writing partner, they did just a brilliant job because it's it's kind of an origin origin story of crime. The the novel is set in Miami mostly, and Edinburgh. So we concentrated on the flashbacks, and so then Irvin and Dean had to elaborate, uh, expand, uh, and kind of invent a lot of stuff that wasn't in the novel and they did it brilliantly because it seems like oh this is this must have been an earlier novel that then you know what i mean so it was um it was quite brilliant what they did and it's amazing crew as well isn't it james strong as director as well as really brought something james james strong came on early yeah james came on uh and he was an exec on it as well so he was involved in the development and richard Hart, obviously at Buccaneer, and then we brought David Blair in, and he then became he produced the first three and directed the last three, and he did a, a fantastic job. Um, so we ended up with a really, really good um, team, a fantastic cast of actors as well: Ken Stott, Angela Griffin, Joanna van der Helm, Jamie Sivis, and John Sim. Yeah, an amazing bunch of actors. So you're in just about every scene, do great. <laughs> and we got to also remember that this was produced in Scotland in lockdown. Tell us about your character in crime and 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 what it was like to to portray this very interesting individual. Lennox is, you know, a, a very sort of troubled, fractured, emotionally unstable, unpredictable man who had a childhood that was marked by an incident that happened when he was 11, you know, and, and you know, he was sexually abused. And it kind of determined how he was going to lead out the rest of his life in many respects. He became a cop in order to find the people that abused him. And so when you meet him in the story... You know, he's he's a man who has a foot in both camps of the past and in the future of, of police of policing. And you can tell he's you know, he's a man who sort of operates at the uh, on the edge. You know, he, he can have a laugh and a joke, but as soon as the story kicks off, as soon as the, the young girl goes missing at the beginning, he's immediately instinctively thinks it is connected to other cases in the past to which another man has been, he thinks, wrongly convicted. So he thinks the whole thing now with this girl, Brittany Hamill, going missing is connected to these other cases. Um, He's an avenging angel. He's a voice for the vulnerable in society. He understands the hypocrisy of policing and how it protects some people but not others, how money talks, how class is an issue, where it should be just, you know, the bare bones of the law in principle, but in actuality that's not the case. And so he's fueled by a burning desire to really protect, help, and find justice for people like Angela Hamill, who's lost her daughter. But he's also a man who's an addict and 
who uses drugs and alcohol, who's, you know, when you meet him at the beginning, he's in recovery and he's, you know, goes to meetings and, and stuff. And so he, you know, he, he struggles with that. And of course, with this case of this missing girl and trying to find the serial killer, his past is colliding with his present and it's like two freight trains coming and you just know there's going to be a massive collision at some point. And, and in order to try and... He tries to stave it off, but he's all, he also tries to encourage it because part of what makes him good at his job is the vulnerability that the you know the past brings to him and the rawness that it provides energy for his motivating factors in, in you know, finding this killer. So he's a complex character who, you know, is attracted to the darkness in his life because he thinks it helps him be a better copper. And, of course, his life starts to unravel um, with drink and drugs throughout the course of the series. It's his coping mechanism because while it provides a portal into the darkness it also provides a, some sort of coping strategy mechanism for him as well. So, yeah, so I lived that for like four months. Yeah. So I ended up in like a four-month shoot. Yeah, so, yeah, in answer to your question, um, yeah, man, it was I was there. I was in it for that length. If you've spent that much time preparing, researching, developing a story to try and bring it to the screen, the last thing you want to do is kind of just dip your toe in the water no, you take all your clothes off and you jump headfirst into the deep end, into the fucking freezing cold water, and you go, this is it, for four months. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, at least I died trying. And that was my attitude towards it. I didn't want to shirk my responsibility, A, as a producer, but B, as the, the lead actor. And I, I just, you know, so if you don't like it, fine. If you like it, great. But I was determined that I wasn't going to leave anything behind, you know. It was full throttle really and that's not to say that it's not I'm not screaming at the camera I'm not it's a, it, it's it's subtle in, in many respects the production but what I mean is that I you know I didn't leave any stone unturned in terms of the preparation which is kind of what I do with everything really I mean I, I have a, 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 a you know a very Scottish work ethic you know I'm not lazy in, in, in that respect and um I really love the research anyway, the preparation. So by the time, and and I was, even while I was filming, I was watching documentaries about, you know, child killers and people like Robert Black and, you know, um, Nielsen and, you know, it's fucking dark, man. But, you know, it's like, that's who Ray Lennox is. And that's what, you know, he needs that oxygen in order to breathe. And so, for me, it was like, I don't want to leave it behind. I want to stay in it. And and that's kind of what produced this character, really. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable performance. I always wonder, have never been an actor, never, I, I look in awe at people who, who are able to, to master their craft in such a way. I mean, how do you bring yourself out of this sort of character, having immersed yourself in this story on set for four months, but obviously previous to that, this is something that's very personal to you and is a, a, also a career ambition. How do you pull yourself out of it? And now I know you're an exec producer on this, so it doesn't quite 
it's not it doesn't you know just stop when you walk away from uh, the set on the last day no it doesn't it just well i mean listen you 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 do you just have to i mean i guess therapy (laughs) (laughs) therapy and golf um i think you just have to at some point just cut yourself off from it and you have to you know um really make a determined effort to to not think about it anymore because it is it's quite dark and you know as much as i want to do another series of that i'd love to you know you have to just leave it behind in order to move on uh, but yeah i mean it's yeah you 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 become obsessed about it for sure you do um which is kind of necessary i think for something like this but um yeah i mean not to sound too wanky about it and act three about it but you know, yeah, then once she stopped after a while, they stopped. although I was connected to it for, you know, from mid-August when we finished to, to recently, which is when we we're doing the post-production and the editing, and so you look at cuts and you're, sort of, you're still connected to it. And now I've seen it. I don't need to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it a lot. <laughs> Your story of the week, it has to be, the launch of Buccaneer Scotland, the TV industry story of the week for you. So tell us about what the ambitions are for Buccaneer Scotland. I mean, you touched on it earlier on, just talking about you know this wide range of untapped literary talent in Scotland. What's the mission for Buccaneer Scotland? I think it's to promote, um, you know, writing that's in you know, inherently Scottish and that because I always thought that when people looked at Scottish writing and adapting Scottish novels or telling Scottish stories that they always kind of felt, well, it's very colloquial and it has to really just appeal to a small amount of people, it's Scottish people. And I always thought, no, it doesn't. Our stories travel throughout the world. I mean, look at Robert Louis Stevenson. That's a really Scottish story. And yet, it's one of the most famous novels on the planet. Probably adapted more times than anything else. And I always felt that that, that we should not, not that I'm saying Scottish novelists do, but I think other people outside, when they were trying to perhaps adapt or, or, or work on Scottish productions, always felt, well, it has to be, you know, it's not a very big audience because it's very Scottish. Scottish means Scotland and, you know, only they're going to get it. And I just think the themes that we explore in Scotland and the stories that we have to tell are universal and connect with, in the same way as Arthur Miller connected with me as a 14-year-old boy in Fife, sitting in my council house and, you know, reading on my bed and thinking about my dad. Our stories, like, you know, I know Laidlaw, McIlvany's Laidlaw, you know, Robin Jenkins, the Corn Gatherers, uh, Jenny Fagan's Luckenbooth, you know, Irvin Welsh, you know, uh, train spotting. These stories resonate, connect with, excite, grab uh, the attention of many people throughout the globe. And I think we have to be proud of that and explore that and rejoice in that. The fact that we, 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 we have you know, stories that uh, deserve to be heard everywhere throughout the planet. And, um, and and I think that because I spoke about it before, I think that my upbringing in Scotland, and I spent time, I was brought up in Fife, but I spent a heck of a lot of time in Glasgow because my parents were from Glasgow. 
and we would spend weekends and whole summer holidays and and so that became part of my experience of growing up in Scotland and Glasgow and when I read McIlvanny or James Kelman I just those memories come flooding back and, and my, my understanding of these characters and the stories that have been told, I, I'm just so strongly connected with. And so, you know, whether it is a novel, whether it's a, you know, an original story, you know, we have a strong original talent pool in Scotland. And, you know, I want to be able to help promote that and, by setting up a production company in Buccaneer Scotland, I think that not because other people are, are doing a bad job, they're not. There's some great, they're wonderful producers that work out of Scotland, but more more is better. And I think we just want to be part of that, that unit that promotes uh, Scottish writing because, you know, we, we have an, an amazing amount of, of, of talent. And I'm not, as I said before, in any way, shape or form, xenophobic, you know, living a loving England. It's got great, you know, uh, stories of its own to tell, of which I've, you know, been part of telling. But I, you know, at this point in my life, I just want to focus on producing uh, stories from my, my home country. You know, I'll, I'll work away, I'll always work away, but ultimately, I, 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 you know, we'll, we'll, we will attempt to uh, expand the Scottish voice. I think, you know, we talked about all these platforms that are launching all around the world. And obviously, Netflix has been going for a while, but all the other new players, they've really internationalized local stories to a remarkable degree. I mean, yeah. you've got Scandi Noir, you've got this South Korean yeah. cultural wave that's been happening for the last couple of years. We've seen Normal People, Irish Story, which was, uh, you know, global hit in uh, in lockdown. So there's there's nothing stopping Scotland having its own global cultural moment. Yeah, I agree 100%, you know. Uh, and, you know, I think there's been productions that have come out of Scotland that have, you know, done very well. You know, Outlander obviously is a kind of, of its own genre, but and that's great. That's fantastic. People love it. People watch it. But, you know, there's a lot more about Scotland to be explored. And uh, Shetland was great with Doogie Henshaw, who's brilliant you know we we have heavy literary hitters in scotland and you know those people those women and men deserve to be promoted and uh, celebrated and given help to you know they exist anyway in literary circle circles these novelists these writers but an adaptation then becomes, it's like a hybrid, isn't it? It's a novel, but it's also a TV or it's also a film, you know, when you adapt something. So it sort of morphs into something else. And so you'll get people who don't necessarily want to, I read books all the time. I read love reading, but not everybody does. So then they'll watch a TV show. So at least the communication or the, the voice that the writer has is being communicated to a different audience. And I think that, of course, uh, you know, TV and film is is such a, a global uh, language. Scottish is a great traveller. It just is incredibly attractive. Uh, whether it's a hard-hitting story about poverty in Glasgow, alcoholism, 
with, you know, kill me. Or whether it's, um, you know, stories of levity and, uh, you know, or, you know, you know, Luck and Booth, which is like being in a fever dream. Um, the, the possibilities are endless, I, I think. And I think that once you decide to do something, then I think you go, God, there's this and there's that. And there's, oh, there's that singer. She's amazing. And what does do put her in this? Or there's a, a, a great poet. She's amazing. Um, they're amazing. He's fantastic. That novel, what about that novel? That would be great. Maybe we can update this. And once I think that you're concentrated in a room full of people who think, okay, so what else can we do? And we already have projects that we're adapting or, or attempting to and, um, you know, getting the rights to. Um, you know, once you, you concentrate those minds in, in a room, then I think you realise there's a lot that you can do yeah. Well, I wish you all the very best with Buccaneer Scotland. Do great. Thank you. It sounds like a brilliant business plan. I've got to say, it's like, why well, never, no, no one ever done it before? But Well, no, I think there are production companies that exist in Scotland. But I mean, I, I think that for me, this is the beginning of it. And it's not just that like, we'll have an office and we'll talk about how we can sell these stories to, you know, networks and whether it's Amazon, Netflix, you know, Paramount Plus, Disney, Britbox, it's not really, that's just the beginning. I think that what I'd like to do is to expand it further and, you know, bring productions into Scotland as well. Not just my own, but Northern Ireland have it. You know, they have these studios in Northern Ireland. Um, England has these studios. I think Scotland deserves really good um, film studios. So I think that that's an area that is interesting to, to, to explore as well. Uh, we have incredible, we have great infrastructure. And we also have locations that are the best on the planet, let's face it. <laughs> Dugray, we have a regular couple of slots on the show, which is Hero of the Week and then who or what you're going to tell to get in the bin. So first of all, who's, who's your Hero of the Week? My Hero of the Week. But this is not the story. This is just my hero. My hero of the week has got to be Steve Clark, isn't it? The manager of Scotland, because we beat Moldova 2-0 on Friday away from home. Patterson scored a fantastic uh, goal. And listen, we are been the underdogs and we've been, I guess, the butt of many people's jokes for, for years and years, not having qualified for the World Cup since 98 in France. But we had a decent run at the Euros. And I don't know, I was just looking at it and I was so proud of the team and so happy for us as a nation uh, because you know we have a shot we're not qualified we're not there yet but I think Steve Clark really has utilized the talent and listen we're a small country um, but he has done incredibly well and it's not easy you know going up against these teams I know people say well it's only Moldova but you know it's away from home and um we needed the three points in order to get into the playoffs, and we've done it. And now, of course, we have a game tonight against Denmark at home at Hamden. And, you know, if we get a draw against them, then we'll get a home draw in the playoffs, which starts as a semi-final and a final. So I'm obviously I'm a huge football fan. Yeah. Now, you're a Hibs fan. Aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do the yeah. succession thing where it's Hibs or Hearts and then getting those two mixed up. But Irving's also a Hibs fan, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he wrote... Ray Lennox is a Hearts fan, so go figure. <laughs> the perversion that is extraordinary. So I have to recite off these, like Ernie Winchester, you know, one of the heroes for the Hearts. And I'm like, 
have you done this? Anyway, um, yeah, playing Hearts fan, tough. Yeah. But anyway, there you go. Uh, yeah, big Hibs fan. Actually, going up to the semi final on the twenty first. We've got playing Rangers in the semi final. All right. Cup, so I haven't been to a game for such a long time you know, because of the pandemic and everything. So um, I'm really looking forward to 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 that. But Steve Clark um, is my hero. Of All right, excellent. The- okay, and then who or what are you telling to get in the bin, Do Gray? Yorkshire Cricket Club in the bin. I mean the systemic racism over the years. And it's not like it was a secret. Everybody knew that Yorkshire was probably one of the most racist, you know, uh, cricket clubs. You know, the, the, not just the players, but the fans, the, you know, the, the, the non-white fans who were getting bananas thrown at them, you know, pig's heads thrown at them. And they just haven't addressed it. It's been there and they thought they would get away with it. And, you know, those brave players who, you know, came out and um, uh, spoke about their experiences of, you know, being racially abused while there were players there. It's kind of unforgivable, really, isn't it? I mean, how how that happened um, is, you know, is, is, yeah. is beyond me. I mean, how they can get away with it. I just think that it's, you know... As a Yorkshireman, do great, and as a big cricket fan, as and then as having enjoyed some of the most amazing sports occasions ever like the the ben stokes miracle at headingley and uh a couple of years ago it you know it's very painful yeah. to see this happening and and i think that i just seems to me that the hierarchy of this club have just been completely disconnected to anybody that goes to goes to watch a sporting event and it's just it's just bizarre. I think there's a lot of people who support cricket and live in Yorkshire are ashamed of what's gone on, and uh, hopefully we can sort of break it down and build it back better. Listen, it's not everyone, but I think that what I think about it is this: is that if you hear people making racist remarks in an environment where you're supposed to be a team and supportive of one another. And you say nothing, that's as bad almost yep. as making the remark yourself. Because these poor kids were 19, young, vulnerable, you know, uh, and they're getting that outside uh, in their normal lives, people being racist. The last thing they want is when they're going to their work is to get it in, uh, as well. And what and they're supposed to give their all for their team. Yeah. It's just so messed up and wrong. And listen, racism exists you know, everywhere in society and we all have to make a collective effort to eradicate it. But, you know, it seems to have been so prolific at Yorkshire Cricket Club. And listen, let me tell you something. I love cricket. I'm, I'm, don't tell anyone, I'm a massive England cricket fan, right? Weirdly, bizarrely, perversely, because when I was a kid and I was eight, I watched, I used to play cricket at school because we had this headmaster, this sportsmaster who was crazy about cricket. And I used to, and I remember watching the Headingley test in like 81 uh, with yeah. uh, Botham and the miracle that happened there. And even before that, and just the whiteness of it all, the mm. white, the cricket whites rather, yeah. rather than the players. Yeah. Um, and the greenness and the niceness, it was the antithesis of 
like council estate. <laughs> and I was like, I love this. This is great. And I just became an England cricket fan. And it's like adopting a yeah. team like Hibs or Man United. And so yeah. I've always supported England, weirdly. Uh, and, and I still to this day, and, I, and I've been to, you know, Trent Bridge, I've been to Old Trafford, I've been to Lords, I've been to the Albion, I love cricket. I've been to the SCG in Sydney. I mean, I love cricket. I'm a massive fan, but it's just unacceptable. Quite right. Quite right. And, and so I guess Yorkshire Cricket Club in the bin. Right. Yorkshire Cricket Club version two, hopefully, will be a hero of the week in five years. Listen, there's a lot of really good people in, you know, in cricket, uh, you know, and I've met them and, and really, really great people. And so a lot of them will be really embarrassed yeah. and angry about what happened. Dugray, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed having you on telecast. I'm sure our audience would love it as well. And as I say, coming up in the show, we get to chat to Irvin and Richard Tolkart when we spoke to them on set a few weeks ago. Maybe we'll uh, catch a cricket match together at uh, at Lords Do Great at some point soon. Yeah, yeah, I love Lords. I love it. It's great. I love putting yeah. a suit on. Yeah. My hat on. It's fantastic. <laughs> Take care and good luck with Buccaneer Scotland. And if you want to watch crime, go to BritBox. It's live now, so you can go and watch it there. Thank you very much, Justin. I appreciate it. Thank you. So a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of travelling up to Scotland and visiting the set of crime where I sat down with Richard Tulkhart and Irving Welsh to talk about how they were bringing Irving's novel to the screen. I'm here at the home of Greenock Morton FC uh, in Glasgow, on the outskirts of Glasgow, and joined by Irving Welsh, novelist, and uh, Richard Tulkhart, who's one of the CEOs of Buccaneer Media, who are adapting Crime, one of Irving's novels for TV, for BritBox. How's it going, Richard? How's the production going? It's gone really well. And we're nearly nine weeks in to a 12-week shoot. Everybody who's filming around these times of COVID is many, many more layers of things that need to be done. Uh, but touch wood, we're, uh, as I say, near three-quarters of the way through and we're, we're, we're going along well. It's looking absolutely stunning. So we're, yeah, really happy. Fantastic. Irvin, what's the experience of having one of your novels adapted or you adapting one of your novels for, for, for it's TV. It's fabulous, but I have to uh, pull you up about kind of Greenock and Glasgow there. You can't, you can't say Greenock and Glasgow. When we meet Martin Comson, we'll be going absolutely mental. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're very much discrete entities. But, yeah, I, it's it's just been fabulous. It's been it's just it's been great, man. Just had an absolutely fabulous cast, haven't we? Oh, they're, and they've been acting out their skins. Yeah. So, uh, I'm just so looking forward to seeing this. Yeah. When it came to casting crime, we know Dougray Scott is obviously has been involved as an executive producer and is involved in the very genesis of the project. How did the casting process work for, for everybody else, Richard? How, how, how did that go? Well, you know, casting processes can be quite tricky, but when you're talking about a book written by this gentleman uh, and there's the plethora of amazing Scottish actors out there and uh, your casting agent says, would you like to be in an Irvin Welsh adapted book? It, you, you don't struggle to get top talent. And, you know, we've proven that with, with, with the cast that we've got, you know, yeah. in obviously Dugray playing the lead, but Joanna Vanderham, Ken Stott and, uh, and, and uh, John Simpson. I mean, it, you, you, can't, you can't ask for more, really. No. 
Absolutely. It's uh, and, and then coming together on screen is it, it, it's, it's just been. And we've even got my old mate Jimmy Sivers from Leith playing Gilman, which is yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have left him out. Sorry. Again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to keep pulling you guys up a bit. Forward. No, no. Well, that's it. Well, I'll, I'll uh, I apologise to anyone from Greenock and from Glasgow. That's that's the first out of the out of the box. So the crime itself was mainly set in Miami, wasn't it? But obviously we're filming and, and this is set here in Scotland. Basically the story that we're filming now was the backstory to the, the story of Miami, which was Lennox actually broken and trying to sort of find himself and getting involved in all sorts of sort of uh, mad adventures there. The backstory, the story about how he got to that point of, um, of craziness basically is... Uh, is, a, is a, the story we're telling, and it's about his confrontation with uh, the serial killer. You know, he becomes obsessed with the serial killer, but the serial killer also becomes obsessed with him because he wants someone to tell his story, someone that understands him, and he has this um, this kind of horribly weird and symbiotic relationship with Lennox that kind of um, unravels right through the season as he's kind of playing cat and mouse with Lennox, and it's, it's quite a an interesting, harrowing confrontation that they have. This is a uh, original production for BritBox. Tell us about what the, what the format is, how many episodes, and is it, do we know if it's going to come out all together, or is it going to be released every week, or is it too early to tell that? I mean, in terms of how it's going to be released, I think we'll leave, leave BritBox to uh, to announce that themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, that's that's for the, their plan, and we'll know that soon enough. But six one hours, and, yeah. um, and you know, the process of, of of working with them has been fantastic. You know, I think they they've seen that the the talent that there is involved in this, when left to their own devices, can be trusted to deliver what they say they're going to be delivering. And uh, you know, my business partner. Tony Wood, who is a phenomenal producer, has you know brought, brought this all together with talent like the the acting talent that I've just sort of put forward, and uh, and then on top of that you've got you know David Blair and James Strong directing, and they are and what you'll see that they've done is it, it is a show that hasn't been seen before, and uh, you know I think we we see we see crime. On TV a lot, it is probably the most watched genre that there is and produced genre that there is. But I think I can hand on heart say that an audience will not have seen this. And what about filming in Scotland and, and the Scottish TV industry? Because we know this is an industry full of uh, very talented people, but perhaps hasn't had the support that it might have needed over the over the years. Do, was it important to, to obviously, obviously the story is set in Scotland, but... Um, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's almost like whenever you film something in Scotland, the great thing about it is with, with the crew, you meet all the same people, basically, and, you know, they're, they're all brilliant and uh, some fabulous people that work with here, and it's just, um, you know, it's great for me personally that I feel like I can bring projects, I can, I can you know, from Trainspotting to, right through to this, and, you know, the Asset House and Filth and all... You get to do a project here and you get to work with people down the years and uh, you do get to know so many talented people. So it's great. It's just great to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah I should also say a big thank you to Creative Scotland who have been fantastic as well in, in helping to you know bring the show, not just in a, in a financial sense, but in uh, all the support that they've, they've brought. We as a, as a company are certainly planning on doing a lot more up here as well. Let's not forget that... This is a major drama series shot during COVID. 
under COVID conditions, which must have presented its own challenges. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about what difference producing under COVID means to a regular production? Well, apart from being a lot more expensive, yeah, uh, and it is vastly more expensive, right? Um, it, it, on a show like this, but uh, again, in our, the, you know, the partners that we have in this show and both uh, BritBox, ITV, and uh, Cineflix are production partners who, you know, are very understanding in uh, in the, the difficulties that we are all facing as an industry and having to go through. The, the setup under COVID, luckily, is not something I had to get involved in, but the, the teams of people that are in there and around making sure that everybody is, first and foremost, everyone's safe. Um, you know, we've got a, a crew of 90 people and, uh, and, a, and a big cast, so... That's the key element, but there's lots of little tricks that we picked up on a show that we produced before this, that we brought over to here. We put in extra layers of safety over and above what we're meant to do and have to do, whether that's for you know government reasons or uh, insurance reasons. But you know, the, ultimately, the the point of spending this extra money is you're keeping people safe, but you're keeping the production going. And you know, to to stop production now is a big problem when you're dealing with the talent that we have on this show because invariably they're going on to something else afterwards. Yeah, it's had its challenges, but it also focuses the mind a bit and makes for a tighter show, I think. So crime drama is a huge genre that's, that never seems to you know, stop growing in terms of popularity with audiences. Why, why is that, Irving? Why, why is crime drama so enduring? I think people are always, you know, it's like, <clears throat> I think a lot of um, straight people really like crime because they don't really get involved in it, and it's something that... Uh, they know happens, but so, but they don't really want to um, immerse themselves in that world, kind of wisely. Uh, but they're fascinated by it because it's you know they know it happens and it's out there somewhere. So it's a way of consuming it in a safe way. It's a way of getting closer to it in a safe way. It's a way of looking at the the frailties of humanity without necessarily kind of immersing yourself in that. Um, but you know, I mean, again, I, I would I would kind of dispute whether this is even strictly crime genre in a sense. It's um, mm-hmm. I see it as being more about um, uh, people in the, the modern age at work or trying to get by and trying to rely on each other and uh, subject to the incredible pressures that we're all under now, this kind of whole, this whole kind of existential threat to humanity that we haven't really experienced before in any other era um, we now have. And that just adds this kind of layer of psychological pressure on people. And I think it's about... Uh, people in a very, very extreme situation, a very, very extreme environment, trying to get through and trying to overcome their own demons in order to try to find out what's going on with them. Now, you've got a Yorkshire writing partner on this, haven't you? Dean Kavanagh, who's yes. there. And uh, what, what does Dean bring to the table in terms of a writing partner for Irving Welsh? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's quite interesting the way we work together because we... Um, when Dean and I write something, uh, well, you know, whether it's a feature or a TV show, it's like when we look back at it, it's almost impossible to work out who's written what, you know, or, or whose idea was was, was what, because uh, it's so organic. The the great thing is for me, having written the book, is that you want to have somebody whose eyes are a little bit distant from the book. You know, you don't want to be myopic about the book. So it's great to have somebody who you know to Dean to remind me that. Um, we have to do something different. You know, we can't just. Um, you know, there's a lot of great scenes in the book, but sometimes um, 
a, fill, a, a film script or a TV script just breathes differently. There's things that just work, you know, it's got to work on stage as well as page, basically. We're very tuned in with how each other think about these things, but it's also nice that we can, if one of us is kind of sticking by the book a little bit, or not not, not the actual book, but um, it gives the other one a chance to go off-centre and we sort of play this good cop, bad cop kind of devil's advocate role with ourselves and uh, with each other. And I think it just adds to that sense that um, it creates something really good, basically, I think. So crimes based upon the novel... Can we expect any more novels uh, along this story? Is there any, uh, might there be a, a further story? Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a Lennox book in the works now that's going to come out um, probably next year sometime. And uh, it's, you know, it's really a follow-up to what happens uh, in the first crime book, basically. So it's about um, Lennox back in Edinburgh and uh, a whole new set of circumstances that he has to navigate. Well, Irving, Richard, thank you so much for spending some time with us here in uh, uh, Greenock Morton, which is Greenock, not Glasgow, in Scotland. So thank you very much. Justin, thank you. Well, that's about it for this week's telecast. As always, thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. Why not follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter? Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in Scotland and London. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.